my dear brethren and sisters and young people. One of the delights of being a speaker at an effort such as this, brethren and sisters, is that we're able to receive information from brethren and sisters who come to us after studies with uh, further thoughts on the matters that we've been dealing with. And uh, we generally take those on board. And there was one particularly that was made concerning last night's study, which I think is worth um, uh, sharing with you. Because remember we concluded our study by, uh, by very strongly showing from Scripture how that the principle of godliness is singular, one. That God wishes to fill this earth with his glory and there is a certain oneness about that. And we took the words of Malachi and showed that of course in the beginning God made one. And the reference obviously in Malachi is not to the fact that out of Adam and Eve there came one unit but that in the beginning there was only Adam for a very particular and important reason because that, after all, is the basis on which God works. And finally, we came through to 1 Corinthians 15 verse 28 and uh, as Brother Ron Herman pointed out to me, I'm very appreciative of it, I misread that verse and in so doing, actually not destroyed but did not support the argument that we were dealing with. Because when we come to 1 Corinthians 15 verse 28 we remember it's the verse where the Apostle Paul says that ultimately when the kingdom is handed back from the Lord Jesus Christ to his Father and I quoted all and in all. Of course the word and is not there. It's all in all. But that supports of course the, the very point that we were making. It is singular. It is one. It is all in all. Not two matters there. All and, in what, uh, all and in all, as if it's separated, it is all in all. That is the ultimate plan and purpose of Almighty God uh, with this earth. And so we thank Brother Ron and thank the other brethren and sisters who have uh, given us some uh, matter that we can also add to our notes on the Lord's Prayer. We move on then today, brethren and sisters, with this very important section of the Uh, the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ give us this day our daily bread when first looking at this brethren and sisters I'll have to admit I found it very hard to really identify with it by that I mean that I like many here I suppose are on a pension brethren here who are working and so forth we each week receive that money which we use for buying the goods which we eat and it's very hard to bring God into that situation unlike the people to whom the Lord Jesus Christ was speaking who were totally reliant upon Almighty God for the food which they got, they received. We remember the time that the, the um, multitude followed him, followed Christ into the wilderness and he had to feed them because they did not have any food with them. We find it very hard to identify with that. Remembering of course that there are many of our brethren and sisters in other parts of the world do, who do in fact on many occasions go without food uh, perhaps not just one but several days before they are able to, to gain from that which is given to them of God one of the things that helped me brethren and sisters appreciate was undoubtedly the fact that in this prayer we have this word us give us this day our daily bread and immediately takes it away from just ourselves our prayer includes our brethren and sisters We made that point in our opening study. This is a communal prayer. 
It is a prayer that can really only be offered by those who are the saints, the sons and daughters of the living God and there is right through the prayer the reference to our and we and us and that is, brethren and sisters, to remind us that we are part of the body of Christ and our prayers therefore are on behalf of others as well as ourselves. Of course we would endeavour in our prayers, certainly we do communally and we should privately, we should personally bring our brethren and sisters in other parts of the world into our prayers and pray for them. But this prayer causes us to do it simply by adding that word, give us this day our daily bread. But when you think about it, brethren and sisters, the bread that is supplied, that is spoken of here, whether it be literal or physical, comes from God. Certainly the spiritual food, which we are going to consider, comes undoubtedly from God because it comes through his word. But the literal food, brethren and sisters, the literal bread is given to us each day. For no matter how much money we had, brethren and sisters, no matter how it's given to us, whether by the government or whether we have to literally work for that, um, the point is that it's no good to us unless we can get that which has been grown from this earth which has been provided by Almighty God. And you know, we in South Australia had to suffer for so long because we couldn't buy bananas um, from Queensland. They went up too high in price. But we do rely, brethren and sisters, very much upon that. And if God did not bring those things which are necessary for the growing of the food, then it matters not whether we have the money to purchase it. And so in the ultimate it comes back anyway to the fact that it comes from God. Now that is the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us this day our daily bread. And it can be taken two ways. Remember our, our little gemstone? We're saying that in so many of these comments that there is a, uh, there are several applications to it. And undoubtedly, brethren and sisters, one of the facets of this subject is that there is literal bread which we enjoy from day to day and without God bringing upon the earth the elements which are necessary for the growing of that food, then we would not have it. And so there is the literal aspect, of course, but there is also, and possibly, brethren and sisters, more importantly, the spiritual bread, the bread which comes from God, which, of course, we have before us in the Word of God. When we look, firstly, brethren and sisters, at the literal bread, there is no shortness of of, uh, verses that are in the Scriptures that remind us of the fact that we owe our daily life and that which we enjoy to God in heaven. Let's have a look at a few of these quotations just to refresh us again because as I said I think we get further and further away because of the way we live to actually appreciating that we would have nothing without God and it does us good to reflect from time to time on these blessings which come from from him. Obviously it's first to Timothy 6 seeing that there is no 6 in chapter 2 in, in the second where the Apostle Paul says to each one of us, we brought nothing into this world and it is certainly certain that we can carry nothing out. Having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that be rich fall into temptation and a snare and to many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. How true that is, brethren and sisters, today, more so perhaps than in any other generation, where if you were contemplating what you are going to have, 
I suppose in our mind, generally speaking each day, the last thought is, is toward God. It is toward, we have so much money, what can we buy this day? And much of that which we buy is not certainly in the terms of verse 8, having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. We add to it things which unfortunately, in many cases, become a problem to us. Now some of our brethren and sisters, as we said, brethren and sisters, live quite differently to us and I've done quite a bit in the Solomon Islands. And I remember an incident there where it was felt that the brethren who were in Honiara, it would be good for them if they could perhaps... Uh, have a little business in which they could bring some money in for themselves. They have no money, literally. They wouldn't know what a bank account was. Uh, They live from, firstly, I suppose, the handouts of people, but also, of course, you only have to uh, take a step back from the main streets in the Solomon Islands back into the bush and you have an abundance of things like bananas, coconuts, of course, there's always plenty of fish. They live on those things and they're very, very aware that, therefore, that their food comes from God. But it was felt by a couple of well-meaning brethren that perhaps they ought to have some little business where they could bring some money in and just perhaps be able to buy a little few of those what we would call luxuries. So they came up with this idea. We found that the fruit, being as beautiful as it is in the Solomon Islands, it's, it may, dare I say it, better than even in Queensland, which has beautiful fruit, it was very delicious. They never think to join them together like we would in a salad. In a, not a salad, what are you doing to chop up fruit? Yeah, fruit salad. So... They, we were providing fruit salad for them when they came to the uh, to the motel room, hotel room, and they all thought this was wonderful. So we thought, here's a, a wonderful idea. The brethren did anyway, and what we would do would sell that in the market. It would be a good seller. And in fact, they came up with a very novel idea because there's plenty of coconuts. You don't even have to buy them. You can go out and pick them yourself. We'd cut them in halves and pour the milk out cut the fruit up, put it in there and the coconuts like a little dish. You can carry it around and of course you, once you've finished that you can even hoe into the, to the coconut as well if you wanted to and you know for an extra few cents you could put a dob of ice cream on the top and so they had it all worked out. Well we invited these two brethren from, from Honiara around and uh, we told them what we wanted to do and they went through the whole process. They got the coconut, they cut them in halves, they cut the fruit up, they put it in, put a bit of ice cream on it and then served it up. The brethren timed them, you see, and right, now we've got this all worked out. They've been down to the market, they worked out what it was to get a stall in the market because there's no electricity, so they then went and found out how much to hire a or to buy a, a, um, a generator and to get a little fridge that would keep things cool. They had all this added up, then how much time it took them to do it. They did their calculations and they said to these two brethren, you know, we think that working it out how you did it there, you could make yourselves $20, $20 a day. Now, they said that in the sense of, you know, it's not much, but it'll help. And the brethren said what would we do with $20 a day? They had no idea what they would do with $20 a day. They've got their food, they've got their, their room, they've got enough. And we said to one of the brethren, look, there must be times when you want something special. Uh, how do you go about that? He said, well, I go across to the market. He said, I've got a little burner and I, I uh, fire that up, put a billy on it with water and I make cups of tea and I sell the cups of tea for perhaps a dollar each or whatever price he gave. And he said, if I'm wanting something that will cost me $20, when I've got my $20, I pack up and go home. And that's not foolish, brothers and sisters. That's coming back to what scripture is talking about. Having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. 
And there are some of our brethren and sisters in other parts of the world who can understand that a lot better than we can. But unfortunately, brethren and sisters, we tend to be, the next verse, they that would be rich. And believe you me, in any other country basically that you go to and you compare it with the way we live in Australia, we're amongst those. And it brings a temptation and a snare. And so out of this we've got an exhortation, brethren and sisters, because, and it's going to be answered to some extent by reminding ourselves constantly that we are called upon with clothing, food and clothing, be content, and that that which we get from that area of food and clothing comes from Almighty God. So it's a reminder to us of that each time we contemplate that subject. Psalm 33 is the second quotation we have here. And this time, of course, we have the psalmist, but again reminding us of the wonderful benefits that come from Almighty God. And we need, I mean, we voice it, don't we, brethren and sisters, so often we would use the Lord's Prayer in our prayers. Give us this day our daily bread. But how often do we really think what that really means to us and how, if we literally believe that, as to how it would regulate what we do in our life, particularly... Uh, in regard to the purchases which we would make, which we are blessed with uh, in this country. Uh, Psalm 33 and verses 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of Yahweh is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Now we can apply that one, of course, equally spiritually, can't we? because we do live in an age as far as where it is a famine for the word of God. Certainly a famine when we compare ourselves with the world, which is totally ungodly, and to some extent even within the ecclesia, a time of famine, spiritually. But looking at it just as a literal uh, thing, brethren and sisters, God has promised us that he will keep us alive even in time of famine. And while we're not in a time of famine, brethren and sisters, the very principles that are here in psalms such as this, in words of God, with the words of God, should be in our minds. As we thank him for what we have, we know full well that he will look after us even in the dire extremes of life. Psalm 34 and the next psalm in verse 10. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek Yahweh shall not want any good. Again, we can apply that as far as the the, uh, spiritual things are concerned, but even looking at it literally, brethren and sisters, there's the promise that God has made uh, to his saints. Proverbs 30. It's just a matter of us keeping these things in mind. We can't totally identify with them, brethren and sisters, but they should at least be in our mind as we utter these words before Almighty God, that we understand what he is talking about, although we may not always fully appreciate them. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. And how true this is. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Same phrase, basically, again. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is Yahweh? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. Now, how practical, brethren and sisters, is that exhortation? And I would venture to say that none of us would be in the, the second of those predicaments where we are so poor that we need to steal. 
But, brethren and sisters, it's so easy for us to be amongst those who, being full, deny God. And in our conversation, in our homes with our children, brethren and sisters, how many times when we are discussing with the family what we can and we can't purchase, do we bring God into the picture? Or is it simply a comment, we can't afford that? Or that's all we can afford? And our children, unfortunately, therefore have this equation in their minds. They leave God right out of it. It depends on how much money you've got. And we ought to, particularly with our children, keep reminding them that we are very blessed with what we have from Almighty God and he will give us the necessities of life. The older generations did that, but today it's not so common for us to do that, to remind ourselves and remind our family constantly of the blessings that come from God. And if we don't, brethren and sisters, then there is a tendency to lose sight of it totally in our life. And finally, James 4. And so now we go back into the New Testament and the words here, very similar to those, but the sentiments are the same as those that we have been uh, been commenting on in regard to our acceptance that God gives us these things, we should therefore be appreciative of them. James 4, verses 13 to 16. Go to now, ye that say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such a city and continue the year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapour that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For what we ought to say is, If the Lord will, we shall live and do this and that. But now we rejoice in your boastings and so forth. Now, brethren and sisters, that was a standard by which our parents and grandparents in the truth uh, lived their life around. In terms like, if it be the will of God, the acknowledgement that God gives us everything and therefore to thank him. Uh, so that my, certainly my grandparents, I can remember as a very youngster, very small youngster because my uh, grandparents died when I was very young, but I can remember my grandma reprimanding me, complaining over something that my parents had given me for the meal. Instead of arguing whether I should or shouldn't eat it, she just reminded me that that came from Almighty God and that we have just given thanks for that to God Almighty. What right have we then to turn around and say, I'm sorry, I don't like it? And they're the principles, brethren and sisters, we should be instilling in our children rather than other ways to try and get them to eat that food. By all means, teach them that they should be thankful for that which, uh, which they are getting. So the exhortation, brethren and sisters, is very clear that in a natural sense it does apply to us more than perhaps we give thought to, but more importantly we ought to think constantly when we are purchasing things, when we are enjoying things in life, that we didn't get it because we had the money, we have it because God provided it for us in the first place. But that's the point that is being made in Scripture. But of course then we move on and we remember we said that there were the two aspects and we now consider the bread that comes from God. The spiritual bread, which of course is called in Scripture manna. And we have no doubt that that manna of course is the bread from heaven because we have that chapter which we read uh, this afternoon. And in that chapter in Psalm 78 from verse 23 to 25, he says, though he had commanded the clouds from heaven above and opened the doors of heaven and had rained down manna upon them to eat and had given them of the corn of heaven, man did eat angels' food. He sent them meat to the full 
And what did they do, brothers and sisters? They turned around and despised it. And that really is the parallel of what we're saying when or what we are saying when we give thanks to God for our food and then say, but I don't like that and I don't like that. That's what Israel did. And they grew, grew to loathe that food that came from heaven. Now, brethren and sisters, put yourselves in their position and I feel we would grumble too. But they were missing the point that we do and that is whatever we eat, we should be giving thanks unto Almighty God for But over and above that, as we know, when it comes to the manna, it represented much more than just food that they they could eat. It represented something greater. And scripture leaves us in no doubt as to what that manna represented. It represented, firstly, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because the Lord Jesus Christ himself, in John 6, refers, of course, to that manna, and he says, My Father giveth you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. He identified him totally, himself totally, brethren and sisters, with the manna which was given to the children of Israel in the wilderness. But it wasn't only the Lord Jesus Christ that was represented, because he was to go on himself in John chapter 6 and point out that it was also representative of the word of God. And that's picked up in Job 23 and verse 12. Neither have I gone back from the commandments of his lips, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And there Job picks up the two points in relationship to food. There is necessary food in the sense of the literal food, but the words which come from the mouth of Almighty God are important that we understand them and they are the things that will give us life eternal. Matthew 4 verse 4. He answered and said to them, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. So we put together those two verses, and manna does not just simply represent Christ, it represents also the word of God. And the amazing thing is that when we go back into the Old Testament and back to the record, sorry, should have put that up, back into the record of the uh, giving of the manna in the Old Testament, we find that everything that is mentioned in regard to the manna is typical of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want you to go back then to Matthew, to um, uh, Genesis or Exodus, Exodus 16, 15, 16 and we'll have a look at what it says concerning the manna as it was rained down upon the people. In Exodus chapter 16 we have the giving of the manna. In the psalm that we've just read, brethren and sisters, from Psalm 78, we notice that the psalmist tells us, that, tells us what the Apostle Paul later was to tell the believers in the New Testament, that all that happened to the children of Israel in the wilderness are for lessons to us and reminded the Israel of those events that had taken place. Now, brethren and sisters, in the subject we're dealing with at the moment, the Lord's Prayer and the doctrines included, there are many of those lessons that were taught to Israel. We dealt last night, very briefly, but we dealt with the fact of the oneness that that also is seen in the unit of a husband and a wife. They become one, says the word. And that exactly was the lesson that God was trying to teach Israel in the record, not of Exodus 16, but 15, just picking up the context, because they'd just gone to Marah in uh, in verse 23. 
They went to Mara, a word that is called the word, of course, that means bitter. They found that the waters were bitter, and God was able to heal that. What's it all about? Well, you don't have to go very far with the concordance to find out, because the next time that the word Mara is used, it's in the uh, the uh, law concerning jealousy of a husband with his wife. And if he had any indication that his wife was being unfaithful, he could go to the priest and the priest would take water and with some dust that was from the uh, tabernacle area and he'd mix it together and the woman had to drink it. And if it was Mara, if it was bitter, she had been unfaithful. And so we have the, the record here, the first occasion where a husband put his wife to the test and he found that Israel had been a harlot in Egypt. And yet he was prepared at the end of that to say, however, I will accept you again as my bride. We can become one, even though you have disobeyed, even though you have gone after other lovers. I will accept you back. It's actually the message, of course, of the book of Hosea, where Yahweh will take that bride back to himself again, regardless of what she has done. And so there's so many of these lessons here in the wilderness wanderings and many of them, of course, flow over into what we're dealing with in the principles of that which we are doing. But then in chapter 16, of course, we move into the, to the area where the manna was given. Now in the record of Exodus, we'd be aware that really it doesn't tell us where this happened. It simply says they came from Elam and they received the bread. But we are actually told uh, where that uh, event took place, I believe, if you come with me through to Numbers 33. Numbers 33, you may or may not be aware, is the names of all the places they visited after leaving Egypt. But there just happens to be the same number of places mentioned as there are years that they were in the wilderness. And more than two-thirds of the names that are given here are not mentioned anywhere else in the record. But what they are are indications of what happened to Israel. And without going into any great detail, the the interesting point is that some of these words are very negative, whereas some are very positive. And remind us that Israel did have their high spots as well as their low spots as they went through the wilderness. We only tend to read in the record of the low spots, those times that they disobeyed God. But they did have wonderful times when they appreciated, at least to some extent, what God was doing for them. And so you have these names, which, uh, uh, for instance, in one case would would mean... Um, down in verse 22 Gehilathar means assembly in worship the next word Shaphar means beauty but the next one the word Haradar means terror terror then you have again in verse 25 the word Makiloth actually means a congregation in worship very similar to the first word that we looked at first back in verse 21 but verse 26 the word means depression so they went up and down up and down like we do in our life Now in the record of their coming out of Egypt we read of places here in these earlier verses from verse um, verse 11 and they removed from the Red Sea and they encamped in the wilderness of sin. Let me just make this point of the word sin. It's not sin as we would understand it. In fact it's a transliteration of a Greek word sin which we would normally spell with S-Y-N. So it's not sin as in sinning. It's a word actually for bush. He brought them into the wilderness of the bush. And in fact he brought them down to a place called Sin-Ai, which when you add Ai in the Hebrew it becomes my. So he took them down to a place which actually calls my bush. 
and there he constituted them his people. And so this idea of bush goes right through Israel, Israel's wilderness wanderings. But that's the word sin. When we come then, to they've, so they've gone through the wilderness and they move now, or through the Red Sea rather, they move into the wilderness. They took their journey out of the wilderness and encamped at Dofkar, not mentioned in the record, but the word means to drive a flock of sheep hard. Now God, remember, led them out of Egypt. He didn't drive them at all. He led them out of Egypt. But we do know that immediately when they saw Egypt across the Red Sea, that was the time when they murmured and said, we've got nothing to eat in chapter 16. We remember all those things we had in Egypt. And the only way God could stop that was then to drive them back into the wilderness, away from where their eyes could see Egypt and remember those things. And so Dofkar is that place. They departed from Dofkar in verse 13 and they encamped in Alush. And Alush just happens to mean, I make bread. I make bread. There's no problem, brethren and sisters, with understanding where they received the manna. It's there in Alush, before they reach Rephidim, that we can go back now to Exodus 16, and we find that they are now in Alush, a place which actually became named. Obviously these places were named after they left, um, according to the event that took place. They came to a place which was to go on record as Alush, where they actually, having complained to God, and you notice that of course in verse 3, that they, as they looked across and saw Egypt, they remembered that in Egypt we sat by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full. Why have you brought us forth? And so he decides that he will bring them some bread from heaven. And now we can look, brethren and sisters, at the principles that are involved in this wonderful bread that was supplied. And the first thing that we find in verse 1 is that it was in the wilderness when they came into the wilderness. Now that applies, of course, to both both the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word of God, of course, brethren and sisters, comes to us from a situation where it is dry and parched. The world has not got the Word of God. The world out there is parched and dry. And in that, God is going to bring forth fruit unto himself. And he does it through his spiritual food. And so it represents, firstly, brethren and sisters, the Word of God when it talks of that which was given in the wilderness. I don't think we're going to have time to to read all these quotations, but you can perhaps mark them down and put them in the margin for yourself at some later stage. And as far as the Lord Jesus Christ was concerned, of course, we know, and that's when we are introduced to him. Where? In the wilderness. On the first occasion that he came to John, and he was then led uh, into his trial or his temptation. And so we're introduced to the bread of life, the true bread of life, in that context of the wilderness. In verse 4, very clearly, when the bread is introduced to them, Moses from God says, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. No doubt, of course, as to what that is a reference to. Both in the case, of course, the word of God, which comes from God. Let's have a look at, at uh, the second of Peter chapter 1, because here's a verse that, again, we're fairly familiar with from lectures, where it talks about that Word of God, but we don't often look it up in a study context where we can really find out what it's talking about. But in the second of Peter, and from verse 20, chapter 1, verse 20, or 19, 
We have also a more sure word of prophecy, wherefore ye do well that you take heed in your hearts, as unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is by any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but the holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now we very often, when we're reading these verses, take verse 20 and 21 as referring to the inspiration of God, to God's word, in the giving of it. But verse 21 is the giving of the word, verse 20 is the receiving of the word. Because when it says no private interpretation, that's exactly what that word means, interpretation. It's interpreting the word. It's not of any private interpretation. You and I, brothers and sisters, cannot come to our own understanding of the word of God. It can only be understood through the eyes of Almighty God himself through his word. It is not of any private interpretation because it was given by God and God alone can interpret it. In the words of the Apostle Paul in Corinthians, we have to compare scripture with scripture to understand it. Peter says it's not by any private interpretation. It's in fact a good one to quote when you are having some discussions with other religious groups and they come up with their ideas and you say, look, we've got to be very careful because Paul warns us that the scriptures should not be understood by private interpretation and that's exactly what you are doing. Uh, interestingly enough too, called to mind a story in the Solomons when we were debating in the, in the market. Quite a large crowd around us, myself and an SDA fellow, only a young lad, but uh, he was, uh, was fairly loud mouthed and he brought quite a group around us. And this very old white haired fellow stepped forward at one stage and he turned to the crowd and he said, you know the difference between these two men? And he said, this one over here, he's pointed to me, and he said, he's quoting you from scripture. But he said, this one here is quoting you what he's heard from someone else. And that was, he could see that distinction in what was being, being taught, being uh, said as we went through. And that, brethren and sisters, has to become clear when we talk that we are talking from the word of God. It has to be a clear interpretation of God's word. And so in verse 4, we're also told there that he said you will go out and gather a certain rate made fruit, sorry, behold I'll rain bread from heaven for you, the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day that I may prove them whether they walk in my law or not now already brethren and sisters if you've got that thinking cap on and you're thinking about this as a type, that of course is a beautiful one isn't it that it has to be every day it's not a case of when, when we choose brethren and sisters, it's every day we have to partake of that that food. Every day we partake of the word of life and of course as far as the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned it must be a daily intake of the principles that were seen in him. Through our readings of the word that's why the word, the readings that set out by Brother Robert Roberts are so important and incidentally when he wrote the, um, the uh, Good Companion and gave us those readings he said I'll give three readings because it typifies food. And as we have three meals a day, so we should read the word three times a day. Brother Robert Roberts saw that principle. Three times a day we would partake of the word of life is what he wanted us to do. We tend to jumble it all up together at night and try and do all three, which is really not a good habit. We should try as much as possible 
to do it in the way, in the spirit and in the way that Brother Robert Roberts suggested. Start the day with it, uh, strengthen yourself during the day with it and conclude the day with it is the ideal way of reading the Word of God. And so Brother Thomas had that in mind. Many years ago in the Woodville Ecclesia, which I was, my, my wife were baptised in many, many years ago, um, there was a brother, a single brother, uh, a bachelor, who was living on his own. We had a little bit to do with him. When you went to his house, in the lounge room, he simply had a table, a long table, and three chairs. And in front of every chair he had a Bible. And when he died, we knew exactly when he died, because he died between the first readings for the day and the second readings for the day. In other words, he died sometime between breakfast and lunch. Because he literally did that. He sat in chair number one, he did his first reading for the morning. At lunchtime he sat in chair number two and he did his second reading and then he sat in his third chair and he turned over to the next day's readings each time. And the thing that struck us as very young children when we used to visit him was here's a man who lived the word of God. It was his life. That's all he had in his lounge room was the Bible opened at three different readings for the day. And while we can't always, brethren and sisters, do exactly the same thing, nevertheless we should try and develop that type of thinking towards the word of God. And so it has to be every day. And when we do that, of course, we will imbibe and take in the principles that are found therein. In verse 7, moving on, it says, In the morning you shall see the glory of Yahweh, for that he heareth your murmurings against Yahweh, and what are we that you murmur against us? In the morning ye shall see it, the glory of Yahweh. There's no doubt, brethren, is there, that the Lord Jesus Christ was the glory of God. And no doubt also, brethren and sisters, from Proverbs 25, that the Scriptures are the glory of God. Come with me to Proverbs 25. Again, a a classic quotation in the context of what we're talking about. And it links so beautifully with our quote from 2 Peter 1 in interpreting the Word of God. It is the glory of God to conceal the word. It is the glory of kings to search out the word. That's what it's saying to us in the Hebrew. The word glory and the word honour are the same and the word thing and matter are the same. And that word translated thing and matter is that Hebrew word which is normally translated as word. For instance, go across to verse 11. A word fitly spoken. That's our same word. Same word translated thing and matter is actually translated in verse 7 as a word. And so it is a wonderful thing, brethren and sisters, that we have this word and we have in this age, like no other age, the ability to study it. We have all the aids that we need and more as we study the word of God, which means, brethren and sisters, that Christ's return is very close because man has been given absolutely every opportunity to come to understand his word and the patience of God is soon to run out. But the world can never claim, brethren and sisters, that they did not have the opportunity to understand the word, for it's available. And you can't go into any capital city in Australia now without finding a Lutheran bookshop or something similar which has those things for sale. You go, they all spend their time on the internet and there's no, any number of sites there which deal with religious matters some of them good, some of them absolutely shocking, I suppose some in between. But nevertheless it's there reminding them of the word. Man is without excuse. It's time for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. We move on into verse 12. This week this is of course going back to, uh, to Exodus 16. 
and in verse 12 we read concerning the manner that I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel speaking unto them saying at even ye shall eat the flesh and in the morning ye shall be filled with bread and ye shall know that I am Yahweh your God like we picked up out of those quotations yesterday it is, to, it is there all day for them in the morning they could get it and they could eat it and it was there for them in the evening and several of the scriptures, of course, tell us that concerning the word of the need for that all day. And so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's see why we've quoted there Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27 in regard to the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 and verse 27 or 26. Even the mystery or secret which has been hid from ages and from generations but now is made manifest to his saints to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this secret among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so you have the the reference of the Lord Jesus Christ and the need, brethren and sisters, for us to constantly take in the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Exodus chapter 16, we go on into verse 13. Verse 13, of course, it came to pass that even the quails came up and covered the camp and in the morning the dew lay round about the host. Now the first thing is, of course, it's identified with the dew. And the dew in Deuteronomy 32, of course, is a reference to the saints of God, actually. It's it's representative of those who will reflect the glory of God. That dew uh, represents those who would reflect God's word. And so it's a a fitting quote to put there. But it wasn't only with the Jew, it was to lay about. You know what that meant, brethren and sisters? It meant this, that every time, every day that the Israelites woke up, they could go out of their tent and they could do one of two things. They could either pick it up and eat it or they could tread it underfoot. And we're faced with that every day of our lives, brethren and sisters, surely. Because they're in the house let's say the lounge room, is the word of God. And we have a choice when we get up in the mornings and have our breakfast, brethren and sisters, of either going to the word and picking it up and reading it or walk straight out the door without thinking about it. And that's exactly the choice that Israel had. They could either pick it up and eat it or they could trample it underfoot. And so it is, brethren and sisters, with the word of God. It's either accepted by us or it's rejected by us. There's no half measures in that. And the same, of course, with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is there that we can daily uh, contemplate the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 14, we are told of that, that it was a small round thing. Verse 14, Behold, upon the face of the wilderness there lay a small round thing. Firstly, it's small. and That, of course, is the, the view of the world as far as the word is concerned. To us it's large, but to the world it's nothing. It's not worth even thinking about. It's contemplated as a very small thing. And so it is with Christ, brethren and sisters. The greatness of Christ is unappreciated by the world, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. But of course it was round. No doubt as to what the roundness represented, it meant eternal. That was the symbol of eternity, the symbol of the circle. It's why, of course, that's where it comes from, interestingly enough, and the bride puts the wedding ring on her finger. That's what it means, is eternal. The marriage is for life. That's what that actually means. 
and so it speaks of eternity. As far as we are concerned, of course, we are to put on a ring which will eternally bind us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so both the Word and Christ, of course, are eternal. As we said, we can't turn all these quotes up because there's a lot of them. We've got another uh, transparency to go yet. But um, write them down and have a look and you'll see the appropriateness of them in your own time. In verse 15 then, it moves on and we're told that they said one to another, What is it? For they wist not what it was. And Moses said unto them, This is the bread which Yahweh has given you to eat. So what is it? And again, isn't that the classic comment really from people who don't understand the word of God? And so often you speak to people who say, oh, I might get interested in the word, but when I read it, I just can't understand it. I don't know what it's all about. Equivalent to saying, what is it? They don't know. And the same as it is with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is rejected by so many, for, for even for the work which he has done. And it was, we notice there, the word given. It was given for them an important principle that we always should consider, brethren and sisters, of course, particularly in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we remember that as we come around the emblems each Sunday, that here was that which was given to us. The words given, the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is given as well. And it was to be eaten. And that's an important principle. The word, of course, being the inspired word of God, all these words mean something. Why would you have to say that God gave them food and then say, and they ate it? They obviously did. And they ate it for 40 years in the wilderness. But it had to be eaten to remind us that, brothers and sisters, it's there. We have to eat it. It's no good having a, a Bible on the, on the shelf and not eating it. Some of you will probably remember that a favourite saying of Brother H.P. Mansfield used to be, uh, seven days without the word of God makes one week. And of course he spelt weak, W-E-A-K. That was the principle. It is there, brethren and sisters, to be eaten. We move on in that chapter and we make the same comparison between the two. Verse 16. This thing which Yahweh hath commanded, gather it every man according to his eating, an omer for every man and so forth. Every man firstly had to gather it. We all are responsible, brethren and sisters. We can't, uh, we cannot, of course, live the truth or be an acceptable life before God unless we are being involved in it personally ourselves. And that's probably an exhortation more to the sisters than to the brethren. It is for them, sisters, it is for you to reason out the things of God. It is for you to put them into practice in your life as much as the husband. It is for you to make those decisions as well as him. Now, in the past, that wasn't that, of course, would have been uh, understood better, because the man was away from the home for so long, and the wife and the woman had to make the decisions all the time. Today, he is there in the house all the time, wise would say for better or worse, and you, but he's there all the time, and there can be a tendency for her to rely entirely upon him for any spiritual matters. But there are those ways that sisters themselves personally can get down to the word. They can do their readings. They, of course, can, can listen to tapes. There are so many ways. In, they can mark their Bibles. There are ways in which they, as a person, as an individual, can take in the Word of God. And, of course, if we're dealing with anything in the New Testament, we are going to take in the principles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice it says there in verse 16 that it was for those in the tent. 
very specific again, for them in the tent. No doubt, of course, brethren and sisters, that would have two aspects. Psalm 127 talks about the godly family. The godly family in which the children, uh, the children are like those little olive plants around the, uh, the olive tree. A need for the truth, that house, to be full of the word of God. But of course it's also in the ecclesia of God. And the ecclesia is the house of God and there within it we should be able to partake of the manor. That's why, brethren and sisters, it is so vital to have very strong and virile Wednesday night class, midweek study classes in each ecclesia. We come together each Sunday morning around the emblems that we might be reminded of the wonderful work of Christ. It is not the place, brethren and sisters, for deep uh, study of the word of God. It's a place for us primarily for the meditation of what God has achieved through his Son on our behalf. But Wednesday night is the time for feeding on the word of God and it's so important therefore that the Ecclesia has a very strong virile meeting during the week that the Ecclesia might be the partakers of the word of God in that sense. Verse 17 tells them, interestingly enough, they had to take a more or less. The children of Israel did so and gathered some more some less. And isn't that true of the word of God? That we all have different capabilities and we have to be very careful that we don't impose, brethren and sisters, perhaps our own understanding of an issue on somebody else. Some cannot take in the same measure that others can. So there is more and there is less. But there still is a responsibility for each one of us to help each other to fill up that capacity which we have. Our problem is so often that we excuse our, our ability to have anything at all. But we have to fill up, fill the measure up of what we're able to. But it will be different with all different people. And the ones who have to remember that as much as anything, of course, are the teachers in the ecclesia, that there is something for all. Whoops, I wasn't supposed to press that twice. Verse 21, they gathered in the morning. Again, you see, remember we went to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, the chapter that says that in the morning you were to... to uh, uh, to um, obey God in the, after, in, in the evening God was to be in your mind so the whole day had to be centred upon us but it started of course in the morning and mornings brethren and sisters started without God in our thoughts are really a wasted day and some of us now who are older of course have the privilege of being able to do those readings through in the mornings and it makes such a big difference to the outlook of that day but even in the busy life of our younger ones, you must make time in the morning to think on those things. Some brethren find that they, they can do that in different ways. They can be listening to a tape as they're going, along, going to work in the morning. Some will simply have a thought written down on a piece of paper or a card that they will take with them, that they will constantly look at during the day. But in the morning we need to take in something which is going to help us keep our mind on God uh, during the day. In verse 23, they're specifically told how they are to take it. They are to take it, it says, in verse 23, um, tomorrow is the rest for the Sunday Sabbath unto Yahweh. Bake that which ye will bake today and seethe what ye will seethe. And there, that which remaineth over lay up for you to be kept until the morning. So it can only be taken and eaten, brethren and sisters, after it was baked and seethed. And that means, brethren and sisters, that the word is not simply to be taken and gulped down. It is to be something we spend time over preparing. 
Often brethren say to me, look, I'd like to do a study of the word of God, but you know, I never get the opportunity because no one asks me to speak. Speaking, brethren and sisters, is not the opportunity to study. The fact that we have the word and we have a family is the excuse to study the word of God. And brethren, particularly those with children and family, wife, have no excuse not to start a study of the word of God for the benefit of their own family. If we did that, brethren, if we prepared for the readings each day by doing something in the prior... Uh, that we might be able to give the family food. That is the most profitable study of all. We all have to bake and to seed the word of God. It has to be dealt with in a particular way. We find in verse 25 that the term not in the field, it says, Eat that which is today, for the day is a Sabbath unto you. Today ye shall not find it in the field. And you know, brothers and sisters, it's really the same for us, isn't it? I haven't put quotations down there, but we go the whole week at work or whatever circumstances we are in during the week. We're in the field and then on the Sabbath, our Sabbath, I'm not saying the Sabbath in the sense of the, se- of the seventh day, but we're Sabbath day keepers. We keep every seventh day. It just happens to be the first day of the week. But we come together, brothers and sisters, and we're able to come out of the field and the word is there in the ecclesia of God. So we've got the word in the field which means in our daily life day by day and we come and we receive it in the ecclesia on the Sabbath as it's pointed out there. Verse 31 it was as coriander seed. Um, Verse 31 it says to us the house of Israel called the name thereof manna and it was like unto coriander seed white and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. I'm trying to think why I put the word cut down alongside that. Does anyone know what coriander? Coriander does mean cut. Um, Yes, coming back to me. I didn't put it here on my notes. But the word coriander actually does mean cut. Uh, And so it uh, is, of course, again, highlighting that point that you don't take it whole, it's to be divided up. And we have to do something to understand the word of God. We find that also it was white and we don't mistake the meaning of white scripturally. Picked up in Psalm 119 concerning the word and Revelation of 3 of course of the Lord Jesus Christ that those who are faithful he will make them walk in white as he is wearing white he says. And so he's represented by that whiteness and it was a taste like honey. Psalm 119 verse 103 types the word of God to the partaking of honey And Isaiah tells us that honey was, of course, the diet of the Son of God. And so we've got that spiritual reference to honey as that which can give vigour and strength, as honey does. In verse 35, it was to be their food for the whole time that they were in the wilderness. And so verse 35 says, The children of Israel did eat manna forty years until they came to a land inhabited. And our time, brethren and sisters, never ceases where we don't, where it never ceases as far as the intake of the word is concerned. It will be a whole life of probation that we will need to imbibe the word. We need to concentrate our minds continually upon him who was the word made flesh. Particularly then we read of three particular stages in the manner because in verse 20, of course, if they, they, um, uh, were unable to keep that food overnight for it stank if they had more than the da- for, for a day. 
Now that, of course, speaks of the mortality of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we pick that manner up as representing Christ, it represented his mortality. He was of the same nature as ourselves and therefore typified in that which stinks because there is no way that that nature can, can of course, abide with God. It has to be changed. Then we have in verse 24, on the uh, Sabbath day, it did not stink. And so they could keep it over for the Sabbath day and that represented the sinlessness of Christ, the one who, though he was like us, yet he did no sin, is represented in that, uh, that uh, manner which did not stink. And then finally, of course, there was part of that manner which was taken and put into the ark. It was taken and put before Yahweh and it never stank. It never, uh, it, it, did not, uh, it did not decay, it was there. What happened to it in the end we of course don't really know but it was there for as long as they were prepared to keep it in the ark and of course therefore it speaks of the immortality that was bestowed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So while we typify the, the uh, manner as both the Lord Jesus Christ and the word in those three particular areas it speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ primarily and teaches us a lesson concerning the one who was the Son of God. Three things, brethren and sisters, are necessary when it comes to food. And all these were necessary with manna and they're necessary therefore with, for us, brethren and sisters, with the Word of God. We first have to take hold of it. The first must be approbation. There has to be the taking of that which we're going to eat. And so it is, brothers and sisters, we have to pick up that word just as they picked up the manna and we've got to do something with it. When we then imbibe it, brothers and sisters, it takes mastication to get the benefit from it. You can't gulp it down, you have to chew your food. They tell us, I've forgotten how many times you're supposed to chew food to, to really masticate it but we all must masticate when we're eating. It doesn't go down in lump form. So it is with the word of God. There's a need for us to masticate that word. And Israel were taught that, of course, in the law of the clean and the unclean animals. And the difference primarily was that the unclean animal did not masticate its food. And therefore, it was a lesson to Israel for them for the need for them to do that. We're going to see, brethren and sisters, tonight, as we look at a, an aspect of nature, that that is true. Because you see, when you talk in terms of plants and water represents word, plants need more than water. You can't just pour water on something and it will grow a healthy plant. It has to receive elements, basic base elements that will help it to grow. In other words, as the roots go down, they don't just get water but they take out of the earth all these different nutrients and if they're not there, we've got to add them. And the study of the word is like that. It's not just a case of getting water, the word, and reading it quickly, but it's a matter of then taking time to draw out of it all those things which will give us a full growth. And then finally, of course, assimilation. As that food then goes in and is totally digested and becomes strength in the body, so it is with the word of God. And depending on how much of the word we take, how much we masticate it, is an evidence, brethren and sisters, of how strong we are in the things of God. Now, a beautiful quotation, and I meant to quote, quote it in our first study and didn't, so we'll turn to it now. Malachi chapter 3 is the principle of mastication, if you like, the principle of assimilating the word. And it's in the context, of course, of 
the holiness of the Yahweh name. Because in Malachi in chapter 3 there are a class of people who knew what the name of God was and they were prepared to hallow it and to keep it. And so we read in verse 16, They that feared Yahweh spake often one to another, and Yahweh hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared Yahweh and that thought upon his name. Takes us right back, doesn't it, to that first study which we had uh, in the, on the uh, Lord's Prayer. That understanding and acceptance of the word of, the word of God It is a hallowed name and therefore they thought upon that name and the very word thought there, brethren and sisters, is the word to weave or to plait and it's the word that's translated cunning work back in the building of the tabernacle when they were to take uh, the elements and bind them together, weave them together, that's that word. And so it means, brethren and sisters, it's not just a matter of understanding the name of God but weaving it into our life assimilating those principles into our life that we might be found acceptable unto God. Revelation 2.17 promises us, doesn't it, that eventually that manner will have an effect on us. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the ecclesias. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and the stone on, on the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. We have, brethren and sisters, the opportunity now in this life to partake of the manna that God has provided for us for the 40 years of our probation. But he promises us that we will receive a new hidden manna, which of course is life eternal in the age to come. So again, we've found in the Lord's Prayer, brethren and sisters, there are so many lessons for us. No wonder, therefore, that we could say that no man spake like this man because he introduces us in this Lord's Prayer to so many vital points. And so we leave that subject there and remind ourselves that tomorrow in the memorial meeting, appropriately, it's, it's always wonderful how this happens in a special effort, you work out your, your subjects and so often it falls that it just is right for the memorial meeting and so it is that for the memorial meeting we shall consider the subject Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from, sorry, should be, uh, forgive us of our trespasses tomorrow. That's the last one. Forgive us of our trespasses is for the exhortation tomorrow.